0: this morning, and so uh, she sends her greetings from afar, but doesn't bring her uh, diseases with her as well. So, uh, But it's good to be here this morning. You know, one of the things that uh, I've enjoyed over the last year myself has been, uh, as Judy and I have attended a new church, a different church, uh, to see some of the traditions that they have in the church, which are kind of refreshing. Uh, Things that they do differently that um, I would Perhaps do in another church if I were to pastor a church again, and things that uh, that, that I think bring significance to the worship service um, and bring a focus on God and the importance of His Word. One of those things that they do is this. When the Word of God is read, they stand. After the Word of God is completely read, the person reading it says, this is God's Word, and the people all say, "Amen, amen." Would you like to try that this morning? Why don't you stand with me? Okay, stand and turn to John chapter three, verses one uh, through twenty-one. Let's read all of these verses. Uh, we're not going to get through all of them, and I apologize for that. But um, John three one through twenty-one. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. A ruler of the Jews, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how would you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. This is God's word. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. On February sixth, 1736, after a stormy four-month journey across the Atlantic, an eager young clergyman from England climbed off the wooden deck of a tattered vessel and stepped firmly onto the red Georgia clay. It was his first time in America, and it seemed that a day was dawning brightly for the gospel ministry in the Georgia colony. The young preacher's name was John Wesley, and he had come at the invitation of the trustees of that colony to preach the gospel to the Indians and to provide spiritual nourishment for the settlers who were living there. Wesley had been recommended as a most suitable candidate because of his high moral character, his faithful attention to religious duties, and his readiness to endure hardships. And certainly no one back in Oxford would have uh, uh, thought differently about Wesley, for during his eight years of residency there, John, John, his brother Charles, and a fellow student named George whitfield you might have heard of him, they they and they had this small band of a society of like young-minded men and they had caught the attention of the entire university with their devotion to biblical practices nicknamed the methodists this little band of witnesses worked hard to apply the principles of god's word to everyday practices around england by visiting the poor and prisoners by sending neglected children to school and providing aid for the sick and needy and distributing Bibles and prayer books among the unfortunate. No man seemed more capable for gospel ministry in Georgia. Yet after only two years, John Wesley was back on a ship, bound for England, frustrated and confused. On his homeward voyage, he wrote these words I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? I have a fair summer religion. I can talk well, nay, and believe myself while no danger is near, but let death look me in the face, and my spirit is troubled, and I cannot say to die his gain. On the day that he landed in England in February of 1738, he continued the thought in his journal, and it said, it is now two years and almost four months since I left my native country in order to teach the Georgian Indians there the nature of Christianity. But what have I learned myself in the meantime? Why What I least suspected, that I who went to America to convert others, was myself never converted to God. The gospel for the religiously correct. That is the focus of John chapter 3. And in this chapter, we meet a man named Nicodemus who, like John Wesley, was a respected teacher of God's word, a man of high moral character who gave attention to biblical practices. And yet Jesus says that for all his religious zeal, for all his Bible knowledge, for all his years of obedience, he was still spiritually dead. You must be born again, Jesus tells him. Now, J.C. Ryle, in his uh, book on leaders of the Christian church, said this Records like these are deeply instructive. They teach that important lesson which man is so slow to learn that we may have a great deal of earnestness and religiousness without any true soul saving and soul comforting religion. That we may be diligent in the use of fasting and prayer and forms and ordinances and the sacraments of the Lord's Supper without knowing anything of inward joy and zeal and peace or communion with God. And above all, that we may be moral in life, laborious in good works without being true believers in Christ. John Wesley and Nicodemus are not unique. There are countless others who continue to come to church week after week and sit in the shadow of the cross, yet they never look up to the Savior and trust Him for the salvation that they need. Numerous people who call themselves Christians Yet they have never experienced the new birth that, John, or that Jesus speaks about here. The new birth which only the Spirit can accomplish in a person's life. The new birth which gives new life, eternal life. Which changes sinful people and transforms them into the image of Christ. Christian is just a way of describing their religiously correct way of living. J.C. Rowell went on to say, If anyone wants to know how far a man may go in outward goodness, yet not be a true Christian, let him study carefully the experience of John Wesley. And I would say, if anyone wants to know how to get out of that predicament, or if you know, know someone who needs to get out of that predicament, listen carefully to this chapter of John. Because Jesus will tell us. Last week we said we were going to look at six gospel truths for the religiously correct, and I gave you two last week. Today we're going to get to one, so we're not going to get to six. Uh, Steve will have to go on another vacation, and so, so we can get to the other uh, three. Last week we saw that salvation requires a, che- a complete change of. You, excuse me, let me say it again. Salvation requires a complete change of who you are no matter who you are. Verses 1 through 4, Jesus says, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless you're born new, unless you have this new birth, it doesn't matter how many days, how many years, how much experience you have reading your Bible, coming to church, listening to sermons, doing good works, unless you're born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Salvation requires a complete change of who you are, no matter who you are. Jesus was talking to the teacher of Israel in this chapter. Secondly, salvation is accomplished by the Spirit's renewing power, not by man's religious customs and practices. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Jesus says, "This is a work of the Spirit of God. The Spirit blows where He wishes. It's His sovereign work in man, and it's not accomplished by all of your good works, Nicodemus. You may be climbed, you may have climbed up to the top of the ladder, but if you have established that as your way to heaven, your ladder's on the wrong wall. Remember, we said last week, get down and." trust in God's Spirit. Today, I want to show you in verses 9 through 15 that salvation demands that we listen to Jesus and believe all that God has said about him through his word. That's really the essence of what Jesus tells Nicodemus in verses 9 through 15. Salvation demands that we listen to Jesus and believe all that God has said about him in his word. Look at 9 through 15 again. Nicodemus says to him, How can these things be? Jesus said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel? And you don't understand this. Now that is quite an indictment on Nicodemus. But it's an indictment not only on Nicodemus, but what the Jews had done with Judaism. They had made it into a system of works. God had always... Intended us to understand his Bible as, as needing, uh, understand salvation as being a work of his Spirit and a transformation that only he can give. So Jesus says to him, look at verse 11 Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Say, how do you get all that? How do you get salvation demands that we listen to Jesus and all and believe all that God has said about him from those verses? I'm going to show you that. Okay, because I believe that's what Jesus is saying here. I want you to know this about the, the Pharisees, though. The Jewish leaders were selective listeners when it came to God's word. The Jewish leaders of Israel were selective listeners when it came to God's word. They meticulously followed the things that they wanted to hear, but they conveniently ignored the things that they didn't want to deal with. Now, I don't think that a lot of Christians are too far off of that mark, selectively listening and following God's Word. For instance, the, the, the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day were, were fastidious when it came to tithing their income, and yet they completely ignored what God's Word said about justice and mercy and righteousness. In Matthew 23, verse 23, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees! Hypocrites, you tithe mint and dill and come, and I think we mentioned this verse la- last week, you tithe mint and dill and come, and yet you've neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are things you should have done without neglecting the others. What's he saying there? You can't be a selective listener. You can't pick and choose from God's Word what you want to do. You need to, yes, tithe correctly, but you need to also pay attention to these other provisions of God's Word, of of justice and faithfulness and mercy. In the same way, they were rigorous about enforcing their Sabbath regulations. Uh, every, Every page that you turn through the Gospels, you see them looking over Jesus' shoulder to see what? Is he going to do something wrong on the Sabbath? Are are we going to find out that he's going to work on the Sabbath? And and so it says in in Luke chapter 14 that they, they were rigorous about enforcing those Sabbath rules and regulations, yet they were oblivious to the law's demands for showing kindness and compassion no matter what day it was. I don't know if you remember Luke 14. It says that they were watching him closely and there was in front of him a man suffering from dropsy and Jesus answered and said to the lawyers and Pharisees, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Well, according to their rules and regulations, it was because they had defined healing as work. All right? But they kept silent. And he took hold of the man and healed him and sent him away. And then he said to them, which one of you... Having a son or an ox fall into the well will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day. Well, would that be work to pull somebody out of a well on the Sabbath day? Yes. Well wouldn't it be violating the Sabbath? Yes, but it would be keeping Deuteronomy nineteen verse or Deuteronomy twenty two verses one through four. And God is saying that, and Jesus is saying, that the, the act of kindness is much more important than their definition of what Sabbath rules and regulations were. But these guys picked and choose. They, 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 they were selective in their listening to God's word. They were selective in their following in God's word. And, and friends, I think it's a familiar story with a lot of Christians. It's a familiar story with people who are religiously correct. And it's the issue that Jesus confronts in Nicodemus. Let's look at how Jesus addresses this issue. Look at verse 9, or verse 11, actually. He first points to the great discrepancy between what Jesus has said and what the Jewish leaders accept. Look at verse 11. It says Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen. And you, that's plural there, so it's you, Nicodemus, and the Pharisees do not accept our testimony. Let me ask you a question. Does it seem a bit odd to you that Jesus all of a sudden starts speaking in the plural in that verse? I mean, if this is a conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, does it seem a bit strange that all of a sudden he starts speaking in the plural? Why is this? Who does he have in mind when he says we? Well, I did some exploring because that hit me odd, and, and I found that some people think that Jesus is referring to his disciples who were perhaps with him in the room that evening. Perhaps. But, but the way this is worded and the way I read the disciples, to me it seems the disciples were often more confused than they were certain about the things that Jesus was saying. So I'm not sure that that's who Jesus was, would be talking about. Besides, there's no indication that they were even present when Nicodemus came to see Jesus. Other people seem to think that he means all of those who through, through whom God has uh, spoken his word to Israel, beginning with Moses and continuing on through all the prophets and ending with John the Baptist. That, that the prophets, we, the people that have spoken God's word to Israel is who Jesus has in mind. In fact, look at John 5, if you will for a second. It would lend some merit to this view. John five thirty-two, Jesus says, There is another who testifies of me, and I know that his... The testimony which he gives about me is true. You have sent to John and he has testified of the truth. So Jesus connects the testimony about him to what? John the Baptist's testimony as well. Or the words that Jesus speaks, he connects to John the Baptist's testimony, I should say. Verse 39, look what it says. You search the scriptures. Now this is everything that's been written because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is these that testify about me. So he might be including the prophets there and then... uh, If you look at verse 46, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. So perhaps that's what Jesus has in mind, that he's connecting what he says with all of the revelation of God's word. But I think there's another view, and I think it's a more compelling view of who Jesus has in mind. I think he's speaking of his essential unity and communion with God the Father. Jesus is sitting before Nicodemus, and they're having this personal conversation. And when he says we, he's indicating that he is in complete and essential unity and communion with the God of the universe, his heavenly Father. This is a critical theme in John's gospel, something that he draws out right from the very first verse. You know the first verse? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was what? with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning, with God. And throughout John's Gospel, Jesus' unity with the Father is the vital factor in all that He says and does. Look at chapter 5 again, verse 19. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. Isn't that interesting? He is so completely united that he can do nothing of himself unless he sees the Father doing it. Look at verse 20. The Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. Look at verse 30 in chapter 5. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. As Jesus hears what God says, he speaks, he says. Chapter 7, verse 16, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Chapter 12, verse 49, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who has sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. Chapter 14, he who has seen me, he tells Philip, has seen who? The Father, Father. yes. Chapter 10, verse 30. I and the Father are one. One. Listen, this is so critical to our understanding of what Jesus is saying here. If Jesus is so united with the Father in essence and purpose and nature and being, then it is critical that we listen to him. It is critical that we listen to him and accept what he says. But look at verse 11. The Pharisees have not accepted what Jesus says. Consequently, they have not been listening to God. Now accepting or receiving what Jesus says does not simply mean a a willingness to give him an ear and hear what he says, but then reserving the right right to to pass judgment upon what he says after you listen to him. It means believing or trusting what God has said about him. And not just some of the things that God has said about him, but everything that God has revealed about him in his word. That is what Jesus goes on to tell Nicodemus in verses 12 through Fifteen, using two illustrations from the Old Testament. You say, well, how do you know that's what he's saying? Well, it comes from the grammar that Jesus uses. This is technical for a minute, but I want you to hear this. Just a bit of technicality, but you need to hear this. Most of our modern English versions have chosen to ignore this, but in the Greek, verses 13 and 14, begin with the word and. If you have an NIV, I think one of those verses begins that way. But both verses, 13 and 14, begin with the word and. And this is important because with this common conjunction, Jesus makes verses 12, 13, 14, and 15 a run-on sentence. In other words, they're one complete thought. And so you could read it this way. If I told you earthly things and you did not believe, how you, will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. In other words, Nicodemus, you must believe everything that I have just said. Not just some of the things, not just one of these things. You must believe this and this and this if you want to have eternal life. But the Pharisees were used to picking and choosing. They were used to tithing, mint and dill and cumin, but they would ignore the weightier issues of the law. And Jesus says you can't live life that way if you want to, see, if you want to have eternal life. You must listen to all that God has said about Jesus. And I think when we consider the Old Testament illustrations that Jesus uses, we can see this point even more clearly. Look at verse 12. The first comes from Daniel 7, where God gave Daniel a vision of the coming Son of Man. You don't have to turn there. Let me read you chapter 7, verse 13, and 14 of Daniel. It says, In Daniel I kept looking, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming... And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. So Daniel gets his vision and he sees... Up in heaven, one like, he says, a son of man, and he came up before God, and he was presented to him. And it says this, And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed." Now, you're a Jew and you read Daniel chapter 7 and you say, Oh, great, this is the coming one. We need to be looking for the Son of Man. He is the Messiah who we want to come and establish God's kingdom on earth. In fact, the Jewish leaders believed that Messiah would be the Son of Man that Daniel spoke of. The Jewish leaders believed that the Son of Man would come and usher in God's kingdom right here on earth. They were looking for that day. But they did not believe that the Son of Man would actually be God incarnate. That's why John begins his gospel this way. They did not believe this. In fact, this single truth stirred up a great deal of controversy around Jesus' ministry. Look at John 6.35. Over in John 6... Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I have said to you that you've seen me and do not believe. Look at what he says in verse 38. I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. Look at verse 41. Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him, because he said, I am the bread, what? That came down out of heaven. They were saying, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Now, if you were to read through John 6 and study it out a little bit more, you would notice that the Jews of Jesus' day stumbled more over his claim to have come down out of heaven than they did over the thought of eating his flesh. That's an interesting thought to me. Because most people would go, in today's day, would go, wait a minute, what does he mean about eating his flesh? They did stumble over that, but only once in verse, um, uh, I believe it's in, in verse 52, they talked about it. But in verses 60 and 62, in verse 61 and 41, they were really upset about this idea that he was saying he had come out of heaven. In fact, his claim to have come out of heaven proves to be in John 6 the central controversy. It's the issue Jesus addresses at the end of John 6. And it becomes the reason that many of his disciples turned away and walked with him no more. Why? Because the Jews in Jesus' day believed that the Son of Man, that Messiah would be the Son of Man of Daniel 7. They believed that he would come and usher in God's kingdom here on earth. But they did not believe that he would come from heaven's throne and be God incarnate. Look at verse 12 again. What is Jesus saying? If you believe the Son of Man you can't pick and choose what you want to believe about. Him. You must believe that he has come down where? From heaven. From heaven. That's essentially what he means. When he says no man has ascended into heaven, Jesus can't be meaning something like, well, no man has ever died and gone to heaven. That's, that can't be because that's not what the context is. The context has to do with Jesus coming from above and revealing God's heavenly realities to men on earth. So Nicodemus, if you want me to speak of heavenly realities to you, how could you accept the heavenly realities if you don't accept what I say about the earthly things, like the law and obedience and tithing and mint and coming? And if you're going to accept the heavenly realities, you've got to accept that I've come down out of heaven. That the Son of Man that you're looking for is this. But that's not all that Nicodemus must believe. Look at verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be. Lifted up. Now, the second illustration that Jesus uses comes from Numbers 21, where God sent this plague of fiery serpents. You might remember this story where Israel was grumbling again and again and again because they didn't have water, and they're grumbling about the, the accommodations that God gave them in the wilderness. And God sends fiery serpents, little scorpions or whatever, to judge them by biting them. God also gave the remedy for the poisonous bites. He told Moses to make a bronze serpent and put it on a pole and lift it up. And Moses did that, and everyone who looked to that pole was healed of their snake bites and lived. They believed that God would save them from the judgment, and they lived. Jesus says, you know something? If you want to believe in the Son of Man, you not only have to believe that he's come down out of heaven, but you also must believe this, that he's going to be lifted up for all men to look at and live. And again, this truth proved controversial among the Jews of Jesus' day because they believed that once the Son of Man appeared on earth, he would remain here forever. Look at John 12. Jesus said, When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show, John 12:32. he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And the crowd answered him, We've heard from the law that Christ remains forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be what? Lifted up. Listen, Jesus knew that there were truths about him that would be hard for people to accept and believe, especially those truths surrounding his death on the cross. I mean, after all, his own disciples had trouble with that one, didn't they? You know? His own disciples struggled with the idea that their Messiah was now going to go to death and what would happen to the kingdom of God? The Jewish leaders couldn't fathom that the Son of Man would be God incarnate. The Jewish people couldn't believe that the Son of Man would ever die. But Jesus knew that these truths were not debatable and not open to dispute. And he knew that if people would not listen to him, if they would not believe all that God's word said about him, look at verse 15, then they would die in their sin and forfeit the eternal life that God was so graciously providing through him. Because you have to believe all of this. You have to believe verse 12 and verse 13 and verse 14 in order to have 15 apply to your life that's why I wanted you to just see that those, those verses begin with and you can't pick and choose now we've taken a lot of time with these few verses but I believe it's important so that we might understand and believe what Jesus was telling Nicodemus That salvation demands that we listen to Jesus and believe all that God has said about him through his word. So, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us here in Chicago in the 21st century? Well, first, I want you to know that this does not mean that you must know everything that God's word reveals about Jesus in order to be saved not It doesn't mean that. John 3.16 gives us certain truths, but there are other truths, but you can read John 3.16, that God so loved the world that whoever would believe in sin his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would have eternal life, right? So you can know that certain truth. So you don't need to know everything that God's word reveals about Jesus in order to be saved, only that you must be willing to accept and believe all what God's word says about him as you study and learn. Let me give you an example of this. A few years back, there was a controversy in the church over the biblical teaching of the Lordship of Christ. I don't know if you remember that. There was a huge controversy. I was fresh out of seminary, and so it was probably about 30 years ago. Not a few, it was 30. (laughs) But I was fresh out of seminary, and this thing was raging. And the question was essentially put this way. Must someone believe in the Lordship of Christ in order to be saved? Now, I don't know where you landed back then, I don't know where you are today. I remember the answers back then, but as I sat in my study this week, I thought, how should we answer that question in light of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus? And from our text, I would have to say that someone could read John 3 and trust in Jesus as their Savior and be given the new life by God's Spirit and be saved and on their way to heaven. But from our text, I think I would also have to say that John 3 does not contain the only truth there is about Jesus. And since the lordship of Jesus is undeniably taught in the scriptures, that a Christian coming across that truth could not reject that truth nor ignore the implication of it for his or her life. Why? Because salvation demands that we believe all that God has said about Jesus. We don't need to know everything in order to be saved, but we continue to accept and believe what God has said about Jesus. There's a second application. There are countless people in this world that you come across every day who do not believe that they have rejected Jesus simply because they have not rejected everything that God's word says about him. And so they might say to you, well, I believe that Jesus is God, but I don't believe he is the only way to God in heaven. Or they may say to you, I believe that Jesus spoke the truth, but I don't believe that his truth is the only truth about God. Or they may say to you, I believe that Jesus came from God, but I don't believe he's equal with God. Or they may say to you, I believe that Jesus is a loving Savior, so I believe He will accept everyone eventually into heaven. Or they may say, Yes, I've trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins, but no, I don't believe everything that I read about Him in the Bible. I struggle with certain things, and I, so I don't believe them. Listen, in a pluralistic, relativistic, pragmatic society like we live in. It is, when we want to give someone a quick or easy or appealing answer to their questions about Jesus, it's often easy to rationalize in our mind that their need to believe that their need to believe all about Jesus or everything the Bible says about Jesus isn't that important. And we, we think that all that really matters is that they believe that Jesus died for their sins. But that's not the way Jesus answered Nicodemus. It seems that Nicodemus didn't rejected everything that the Bible said about Jesus because he came to Jesus to talk to him. Still, Jesus says that his selective belief, this idea that he wanted to pick and choose what he believes in God's Word, was the equivalent of a wholesale rejection. And so he goes on to show him that salvation demands that we listen to Jesus and that we discover what God's Word says about Jesus. And we don't think that everything is not unimportant. Everything is important to learn about Jesus. Which brings me to a last challenge for us. I think there's a challenge in this passage for the popular tendency among Bible teachers to whittle the gospel down to a few simple truths about Jesus. We need to consider that the hard truths about him matter just as much. Perhaps you don't like to hear the hard truths about Jesus. Perhaps one of the hard truths about Jesus for you is his sovereign choice of those he would save. And so you never never deal with that. You never explore that. You never uh, really study it out in Scripture. You just leave it to the side. Perhaps one of the hard choices for you is the sufficiency of Christ's atonement for your sin. Oh, sure, you trust in Jesus for your salvation but then you go along life living your life by legalism, thinking somehow you still have to f- earn pleasure with God or earn the favor of God. Well, that's denying whatever what the Bible says about the sufficiency of Christ's death and atonement for you. Perhaps one of the hard truths about Jesus are his temptations. You just can't figure out how, how God the God-man, the perfect man, could truly be tempted like you are. Perhaps one of the struggles that you have about Jesus is his power to heal. If Jesus really has the power to heal, how can there be so much pain in the world? If Jesus has the power to conquer sin and if Jesus conquered sin on the cross, how come there is still so much evil and you struggle with this this truth about Jesus that he has conquered sin? Do we believe that? Or the extent of his death, if Jesus died to save the world, as John 3 says, why would anyone still be condemned to an eternity in hell? Listen, there are a lot of hard truths for us to consider about Jesus. There aren't easy answers to all these truths. But we cannot just choose to ignore them. We dare not adopt an unbiblical argument either. If you avoid listening to these passages, if you avoid listening to messages about them, if you wish it could all be as simple as Jesus loves me, this I know for the Bible tells me so. If that's the way you are, I'd like you to consider two paths that flow out of John chapter 3. Okay? Both paths lead to Calvary through the book of John. The first path is the one is um is the one Nicodemus actually traveled as he came to the doorstep where Jesus was staying that night. Nicodemus had been on this path a long time. It's the path of picking and choosing what he wanted to believe from God's word. It's also the path that the Pharisees took as the book of John continues on, and it leads to the cross where they reject Jesus and condemn him to die. The second path actually begins at the back door of John chapter 3 and was traveled by Nicodemus alone, no longer with the Pharisees. It was a new path. It was the path of listening to Jesus and believing all that God said about him in his word. And no doubt this path was not as easy to travel as the well-worn road, but it led Nicodemus to the vantage point of the cross. You see, if you read through this book, John indicates that Nicodemus was one of a faithful few who stood at the cross and believed in Jesus as he hung there dying for his sins. And as he stood in the shadow of that cross and looked up, believing that this bruised and bleeding person hanging there was dying was really God's loving remedy for his sins. No doubt Jesus' challenge in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15 would have become the greatest comfort to his heart and soul. The challenge is that as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Nicodemus, do you really believe this? Is this something that you're going to pick and choose? If you believe this, Nicodemus, you may have eternal life. So I just leave us with a question this morning. Which path will you be on as you leave John chapter 3? The path of selective listening? The path of picking and choosing what you want to believe about Jesus? Or will it be the path of listening to him and believing all that God has said about him and his word? Oh, may God grant us to be on Nicodemus's path so that we might truly find eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this discussion that Jesus our Lord had with Nicodemus. And Lord, from these sh- few short verses, I pray that we would be people who listen to your son. We're told that you had to speak audibly twice, once at Jesus' baptism, the other at his transfiguration. This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Father, let us listen to him. And as we come to the truth about Jesus in your word, Father, I pray that you would uh, give us hearts that believe all that we hear. That in believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, we might have life in his name. Guard us from picking and choosing what we want to believe. Guard us from ignoring the hard things about Jesus that we just may not understand or that we get so emotional about we can't deal with. Lord, open our eyes to the wondrous truths of Christ, that he is God of very God. That he is the son of man that has come to save us from our sins. And Lord, I pray that no one here today would walk out without looking to Jesus with eyes of faith, trusting him solely. I pray this in your son's name. Amen.